So my, we put the kids to bed. My wife and I are sitting around the kitchen table with my parents. And like, you know, we're just having a glass of wine. And they know that I'm working on the book, but like, we're not talking about it. And, um, uh, and then they just, out of nowhere, my dad's like, you know what the problem with Michelle Obama's book is? And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, she, she talks too much about emotions. She doesn't stick to the facts. And that's going to be the problem with your book. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. A few weeks ago, I got to interview the author of the memoir Sign Gone in front of a live virtual audience. Sign Gone, spelled S-I-G-H, comma, G-O-N-E, is a clever memoir about a young boy, a Vietnamese refugee, and his coming-of-age story in the small town of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. This book is the debut of the first-time author Phuc Tran, also known as Phuc Jang. I first discovered Phuc on my Instagram feed, what caught my attention was the beautiful gallery of tattoo artistry. Phuc was born in Saigon, Vietnam, and his family fled to America in 1975, when he was just a toddler. Sign Gone is a misfits memoir about great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in. Phuc is an educator, a writer, and a tattoo artist. An unexpected combination, which I think makes his story unique, yet very relatable. Well, I'm so happy you're here, and I was super excited to have you, just because um, it's funny because I follow your Instagram before I even read your book. Everything about you was so um, untraditional to what we think of when we read stories about Vietnamese diaspora. There's a lot of topics that you cover in the book, and it spans from like immigrant refugee experience to uh, racism, bigotry, to identity and, and assimilation, to I think like just the complexities of the Vietnamese family and what it means to have gone through some of the things that you have as a family. And of course, it has some good old fashioned teenage drama. One place that I want to start is very early on in your book, I think it's like page 17 or something, you start out with April 1975, Saigon. I remember none of this, but I know all of it. I know all of it because it is the family story. So I want to start there. If you wouldn't mind briefly sharing with us what happened that day. Sure. Um... You know, so it's, you know, and I, it, it's, it's only one of two places where, you know, in the course of the book, I was really careful to only relay stories that I was, that I could remember or that I was a participant in. Um, and, and our escape from Saigon was not something that I remember because I was not even two yet. Um, but it was, it was definitely a story that my family told a lot. <clears throat> and, um, you know, and there are definitely details that were very much like fixed and you know like there's there's sort of like variations depending on who's telling the story but basically my grandparents my um 
Omwai So my, my for the non-Viet people, my mother's parents uh, worked for the U.S. Embassy. And so um, at the end of April in 1975, when um, U.S. Embassy was pulling out, you know, um, they my grandparents were evacuated along with um, I think they chose like you know, 12 family members that they could take with them. And so we were, you know, my, my mother, my father, you know, I was the only, yeah, I was the only grandchild. <clears throat> um, and my bako, so my great grandmother actually also came, you know, she was like 80 something, I think. And um, so, yeah, so we, you know, went to um, the airfield where we were waiting to get on a bus, which would then take us to um, uh, the transport. And um, we were waiting in line. And then, you know, just waiting and waiting, waiting. And there's like, you know, hundreds of people. And finally, we have a chance to get on the bus and we get on the bus. And, you know, and I'm crying like so much, right? Like so loudly. Again, I don't remember any of this. This is just what my, you know, everybody says that I was crying so much and probably just embarrassing my grandmother, you know, Bawine, that she was like, all right, fine. Like, let's just get off the bus. This is so annoying. So my whole family gets back off the bus. And we let like the other 12 people in line behind us get on. Um, and then as our bus, the one that we were supposed to be on, started pulling away, it was struck by, you know, rocket fire and it blew up and everybody on the bus died. Um, and then we were just like, ooh. And then we waited for the next bus and got on that one and got to the airfield. And then we were eventually transported across the Atlantic or Pacific to uh, Fort Indian Town Gap, um, where, you know, it was one of, there's only one one of four places that Vietnamese people could go once you got to the U.S. So you'd go to what was it, Arkansas, Pennsylvania, California, or what was it, Florida? Is that no? It was yeah. There's four. There was only like four temporary refugee camps yeah. that they stood up yeah. to take in the influx right. of refugees at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we ended up in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So you ended up in um, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And one of the few if not the only maybe Asian kid in that town yeah I mean it was there were not a lot of Asian kids in my town um and you know in in school I was the only Asian kid or never mind just Vietnamese kid up until in my classes until like high school sometime you know so definitely through middle school um and you know there were other like Vietnamese families that would sort of come and go First of all, I've never even heard of Carlisle. I had to look it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I realized after I looked it up that even though it's spelled like Carlisle, it's yes. pronounced Carlisle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tricky. Very tricky. And, and it is small because I think they said something like in 2020, it was approximately 20,000 population. Yeah. So, you know, in your book, it talks about some of the different types of experiences that you had to go through as a refugee and a Vietnamese um, person. And it kind of was very, um, there was a lot of variation. So there were some moments where you talked about the kindness of your sponsors and the community and the food and clothing that they, you know, come bring over and, and checking in on you. And then there were experiences about the Vietnam veterans, you know, whenever they saw you or your family, it, you were like a symbol of something. Um, but then the, of course there were the children that 
you know, slanted their eyes when they saw you or called you names. And then the people that were threatened to even have your family in the community. So there was just such a wide range of emotions and experiences in the book. And so I wanted to just um, hear a little bit from you why you chose to cover all of those variations. Oh, yeah. I, it seemed so, it would seem, it seemed disingenuous not to, you know, like I think, especially in the national conversation, like I think, I think it's, you know, this like blanket term of like white people, you know, like the man or whoever the oppressor is. Like, I think it's, it's, um, it certainly eases um, the conversation, right? Like we, it, you know, and it, and it makes statements seem really dramatic, you know, but at the same time, like, I think it, it takes a lot of complexity out of a conversation or out of an argument, right? Which is why we end up at impasses, like in the public discourse, right? Because we're making like blanket statements about like Democrats, Republicans, white people, black people, Vietnamese people. And it's just like, they're, you know, like groups, of people are not a monolith. And um, we experience so many different sorts of um, people in our town. Like it just, it didn't seem right. It's a, it seemed really like an injustice to be like, and all white people in Carlisle were this way, which, you know, we just know is not true because, you know, the, the flip side is like not all Vietnamese people are a certain way either. Um, and so just, I, I just wanted to sort of wrestle successfully or not <laughs> with the complexity of everybody's story um, and, and that they're all interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because I think you're right. It's like, it's not, you know, people aren't a certain way because they belong in a category. Like there are so many variations and complexity. And I think that that's sort of what you addressed across the book. And, you know, there are a lot of things in your book that I think if you removed the decade and the references to the music, the genre, the movies, a lot of what you experience are still happening today to communities and to children that don't feel like they have a sense of belonging in their communities because of either their skin color, their economic class, or whatever it might be. And so I'm curious, like, you, you know, all over the news, there is a surge in just the violence and hate crime against Asian Americans. What I'd love to hear from you is how much of what you told in your story as a child experiencing this is still the same 30 plus years later, and how much of it has actually changed for Asian Americans? Yeah, I mean, I, again, like, I think like the big caveat here is I'm only speaking from my experience and my observation. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is like there are definitely parts of me that are like, oh my God, like this sucks. Like, are we literally still doing this like 30 years later, 35 years later? Um, you know, I think, I think that the upside is um, the allyship that I am seeing from, you know, people who, you know, don't have an obvious sort of vested interest in, you know, the health and well-being of like, you know, the Viet community or Asian Americans, like, like that allyship, like the public, um, sort of declaration, right? That like, you know, I'm against anti-Asian violence, you know, or whatever Black Lives Matter. And, you know, from white people, you know, like I, that's really powerful for me. Like, and the fact that we can have like a public conversation about it and that um, that it's even part of any kind of a discourse. Like, I think, I think for me, like what was 
really toxic and damaging was that, you know, I'm experiencing all these or experienced all these things in the 80s, you know, and in my early childhood that I didn't have a space to talk about, you know, and so it felt a little bit like being gaslighted by like, you know, like I couldn't talk about it with my friends. Like my parents are just like, you know, shut the hell up. Like you could be dead in a ditch, you know, like for my parents, like their, their bar was so low. It was like, well, let's see, there was an exploding bus that we didn't get on. So lucky you shut the hell up. Like everything else is gravy. You know what I mean? So I get, and I, I get, it. I totally get it. But for a little kid, like you don't understand that you're just like, these kids are beating me up at school or like, you know, people are being like a-holes and, um, and they're like, whatever. And, and then at school, like you can't even talk about it because like you're the only Asian kid. So, so the fact that like we're having a conversation about it at all is seems powerful to me. And, um, you know, like, you know, you know, name it, frame it and then tame it. So I think um, is talking about it like the, the end all and be all. God, I hope not. You know, like I hope that leads to action and then to, you know, popular reform or some sort of like policy, you know, consideration. But, you know. I think talking about it certainly helps, at least from from like an individual space. Like I think like I don't feel crazy and feel gaslighted, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and then like I get to connect with people like you, and we're like, hey, like this is kind of crazy, right? Like, and that was that felt really lonely for me as like the only Viet kid. Like I could never go up to like another Viet kid and be like, hey, do your parents also like beat the crap out of you? Because and then like you know like I just could never. I had no frame of reference for anything so I was like I guess everything is normal like this is just how life is (laughs) yeah there's a lot of things that you share about your family that is personal right the complexity your dad's temper one part first of all I like I felt like you were telling my story and it was the part about whenever you got punished you had to kneel on your knees and I'm like, what the heck? Why did our parents do that to us? I think you described that you had to kneel on like uncooked rice grains. Yeah. Mine was your hands were out and the bigger the crime, the more books you would get on your oh, hands man. while you're kneeling. And but the, those are moments where I agree with you is that I felt it was normal. And it was just the way that they, you know, taught their kids what was right or wrong and it was a form of punishment and we never talked about it and then you're right when you grow older and you say it out loud you're like holy cow that sounds like it was wrong yeah yeah (laughs) and part of it's part of the culture that we grew up in though for sure and you know i had i had this conversation with some um you know uh vietnamese americans uh who lived out in california and they were telling me that you know, in the 80s, in the early 80s on like Viet TV and radio, there were these PSAs where in Vietnamese and it was basically like, hey, Viet parents, don't beat your kids because somebody will call DHS. Like you can't do it like in the old country. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, my parents would have really benefited from that PSA. You know, like, you know, like we're just like in Carlisle, Pennsylvania and they're just like, you know, going to town. Yeah, it's very, but, is it, but I, I love that they're, somewhere like even in the 80s there was this like consciousness right though like oh like we have to make some cultural adjustments now um because you know the context is different right the cultural norms are different but uh, yeah it was totally cultural and and just because it's cultural doesn't mean that it's good or right you know like uh, so i think there's that also consideration like i don't um like i'm thankful that like you and i can have this conversation about like our upbringing and be like yeah sure like corporal punishment was like super common in you know viet culture 
And like, is that the best thing for kids? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, at least all the studies, you know, psychological and like child development things I've read, like sort of don't encourage corporal punishment. And yeah, I mean, there. no, no, no. I was going to agree with you because there's so many things in our parents' upbringing. And actually that brings me to another clip I want to read because this one also spoke to me. So I'm going to read a piece from your book. And this is around a part in your book where you got in some real trouble. I won't mention it because everybody's got to pick up the book. They have it. <laughs> okay. You don't, you're um, not going to read the sex whether... scene then either. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, there there's some there's some um, very sensual teenage <laughs> descriptions in here too. <laughs> but th- there's a part where you obviously were a bad teenager. You were grounded for a long time, and Christmas came around, and your parents, even though you were grounded for like six months, your parents surprised you with this amazing gift that they probably had to save up for a long time to afford. But the gift basically said without words that they get you mm. or they're paying attention to who you are. Mm-hmm. But in this, in this moment, you aren't exchanging the words of gratitude that you're feeling inside. And so you write, we lost an opportunity to connect with a kind word with tenderness as father and son. Maybe we would have failed anyway, but I didn't even try. We didn't talk about how he felt or how I felt or where our relationship was. We never did. I had never heard my father say, I love you to me. And then you go on to say a few more things. And I think that it touches a lot of our upbringing in Vietnamese families, probably even, you know, broader to say Asian families. And, you know, like even the Vietnamese word, there is no real word to say, I love you to a child. Mm. Then there's no real like, Good night, honey. I love you. Like there is an English language. Mm. So a lot of us didn't grow up with those words of affirmation. Um, And our parents were acts of service, which if anybody follows the five love languages. So somebody like categorized like different ways that we show. Different ways that you show your love. Mm -hmm. And people like words of affirmation are the ones that always say, I love you all the time. Acts of service is ones that can't say it, but they're always going to do what they feel is best for you or do something that makes you happy. And there's another love language that is gift giving somebody who gives showers you with gifts. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so important because in order to connect in a relationship, you can't expect the other person to show love the way that you show love. Mm -hmm. You have to understand how they show love. And you have to accept that. And I think what you described in your book in that passage is not being able at that moment to understand it. Yeah. So I no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I bring that up because I want to just ask you, like, there's so many parts in your book that is about those personal feelings so first of all, have your parents read this? <laughs> um, they didn't for a long time. Uh, you know, um, my they didn't. And then maybe like six months after the book had come out, like we were on a text thread and um, I finally like texted my parents. You know, like I wasn't going to like, I'm not going to make anybody read the book, like especially my family. Like if they don't want to, you know, <laughs> read it, they certainly don't need to. Um, 
Uh, but I texted you know, my parents um, and I said, you know, and I was like, hey, like just asking, like, have you guys read the book? You know, and my dad literally like just texted back. He's like, yes, it was very painful. And like, that was it. And and like, yeah, I mean, you know, my mother's like functionally illiterate. So in, in English, you know, like I think that like the, the book is written at such a in such a way that I, I, I'm not sure how much of it she would get anyway. Uh, but my father's a good reader, uh, really good yeah, reader. So I was going to ask you, like, when he read some of those moments where I'm sure he didn't really know that his son was feeling that way, if you guys had talked about it or had dialogue or did it shape your relationship differently? No, I don't think, no. <laughs> Is that totally unsatisfactory? I mean, I think, um, I I just think that there's like a, a threshold at which like he's comfortable talking about stuff um I, you know it's generational it's cultural like who knows um and i've 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 tried for a long time to sort of like get him to communicate with me beyond what he's comfortable doing and it's really hard um and you know like it, it, we also live very far away so i think it's like really powerful for us to sit in a room and like talk together you know like it's hard on the phone or on skype or zoom or whatever um so i mean this has been going back like you know 10 15 years where like um we're just trying to talk and it's 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 hard um and ultimately i think it's like frustrating for me and and really like for me like i think the breakthrough was like through my own counseling and therapy and recognizing that like you know at some point like he he is who he is right and and I can choose to care about him and love him for that or not um and and I think like once you know I sort of was like you know he is who he is and and, and I'm okay with that and uh, you know like if if he ever wants to initiate a conversation or talk about stuff like that's really great but like I, I don't think I need his participation in my healing right like to, to put yeah. it totally blunt um <laughs> Yeah. So what made you want to write a memoir? Like, tell me about when did this start and what was kind of going through your mind? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, uh, you know, I didn't share my story for a long time, like really ever. Um, I just thought like it was just too weird and it never sounded like anybody else's story. Um, you know, and I think like growing up in the 80s and the 90s, like I think like your your I was really aware of um um you know like how everybody's story was like oh my god you went to summer camp I went to summer camp and, da, 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 da. and I'm just like what's summer camp you know so I just was like you know what I'm just gonna like keep my head down keep my mouth shut and you know just pretend like everything's hunky-dory um but then I think like as I got older like in my 20s and 30s like I just um like that there was that part of me that like I just never shared with anybody and and I had the chance to give a TEDx talk um and I just thought well uh if this is like the most public thing that I'm ever going to do like if this is like the biggest audience you know of like 300 people in an auditorium like I'm just going to go for it like and I'd gone through therapy at that point you know so like I so I'd done all this like sort of like personal work just for myself and and, and then this opportunity for the TED TEDx talk came up, and I just thought, you know, like I I need to be like as authentic and raw and real as possible. And, and if people get it, like if they don't get it, that's okay. Like that's not about me. That's about them. And in the TEDx talk, you know, they kept using this refrain of like, "This is the talk of your life. This is the talk of your life." And and so I took that very literally. Um, and so 
I was like, okay, great. I'm going to talk about like being like a Vietnamese refugee. And I'm going to talk about like Carlisle and I'm going to talk about like punk rock and grammar and star Wars and like 80s pop culture, you know, like what could possibly go wrong. I'm going to do it all in 12 minutes. Um, <laughs> and like the response was so powerful. And so that just like that act of like sharing my story in a really public way, um, was like, oh, like that was really like, that really felt powerful for me and really, um, therapeutic, you know, in a, in a strange way. And so I started doing like live storytelling here in Portland. Um, like I do like one or two events a year. Um, and then in 2016, um, my agent came calling after she saw the TED talk um, and asked me if I wanted to write a memoir. So, so I had already sort of like started priming the pump of just like the idea of, you know, sharing my story publicly, right? Like not so subtle, you know, wink, wink to the story slam. Like, I think it was so validating um, and energizing um and yeah restorative to do that so had you written other books before this no no so what was the process like and how long did it take oh, you god um I, you know i'm i'm like a, i i read a lot and i love reading you know like and i feel like there's the, there's a scene in uh high fidelity you know uh you know it's in the book and it's in the movie you know and and uh Rob Gordon, the, the main character, for those of you who don't know, he's like this like record store owner. And he talks about being a DJ and and being in a band. And he talks about how he's like a professional appreciator and, and he feels like he has to like contribute. So so in some ways, like, you know, I I'd not written a damn thing. But, um, <laughs> but I'd read a lot, you know. And at some point you think like, okay, I can I think I can like string together a couple of words and make like a pretty good sentence. Like I've I've read thousands of them. Um and I just need to do that over and over again. So I um the the actual manuscript, I think, took me about uh, a year to do. Um, you know, I was I was teaching, you know, full time during the day and tattooing at night and the weekends. So I was really just writing like every other Sunday all day. And you were teaching high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was teaching high school Latin and then tattooing. And then I had like, you know, yeah, my family, my poor family. Yeah. So like my wife was like basically like a book widow for like a year and a half. Do you think because you were a high school teacher during the time, it helped you get into a mind of a teenager? Because the book really, like some of young folks' thought processes are like, they are kind of chaotic and scattered. Yeah. Um, how you would imagine a teenager <laughs> might operate. <laughs> no, that's really how I am in real life. I'm, I'm pretty. No, I mean, I think maybe the opposite is true. Like maybe like a, there's like some kind of weird arrested development for me. Like I maybe I'm a high school teacher because like deep down, like I'm really just like still kind of like an adolescent a kid at heart. Yeah. I just like laugh at like poop jokes and stuff. Like they're hilarious and like, <laughs> you know, farts are funny. And my daughters like think they're, I don't know. Like, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> I have no idea, but I mean, kids these days are different. So what did your family say when you're like, Hey, I'm going to write up a story about us. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that they, they took it that seriously. Like, I think I was just kind of like, I think, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I, it's, I'm also not like a, I don't like bluster, you know, like I, I just, I was very low key. Like I was like super low key. Cause I also like, like, I'm not one of these people who like makes like a grand public declaration. And then that's like the accountability piece. Like for me, like, I'd rather be like super low key and then just be like, boom, like, oh, I did this thing. So that's really how I was. I was like, oh, I'm kind of like, maybe I might be working on a thing. I don't know. You know, anyway next subject, you know, like, <laughs> how about the Knicks, you know, like, they're terrible this year, or whatever, <laughs> so, um, so I was, like, you know, when I got the contract, like, I might have told my brother, but I didn't tell my parents, and then my parents realized that it was, like, really a thing, 
when like I would constantly be texting them, I sent them this like long, long ass like questionnaire of like just to fill in details for myself, like when things happen so I could get chronology right. I mean, I did as much research as I could um, in talking to them just just to make sure that I had like sequences right um, and things like that. So that's when they really thought, and I think they were nervous. So I, I have to tell this one other funny story. It's really this is like classic my parents, right? So. Um, I'm in the middle of writing, it was like 2017 or 18 and 17, I think. My parents come to Maine to visit and they're staying with us and we put the girls to bed. And uh, <laughs> sorry, Sin Loi, bye man. Um, so my, <laughs> uh, so my, we put the kids to bed. My wife and I are sitting around the kitchen table with my parents and like, you know, we're just having like a glass of wine and they know that I'm working on the book, but like, we're not talking about it. And um, uh, and then they just out of nowhere, my dad's like, you know what the problem with Michelle Obama's book is? And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, she she talks too much about emotions. She doesn't stick to the facts. And that's going to be the problem with your book. And I was like, damn, like what? you haven't even read it. Like, I don't even, what? So like for like an hour. Like, and my wife can like attest to this. Like they were just like hammering me, like just being like talking about all the things that like was going to be wrong in my book and like how like I wasn't going to like, uh, like the thing that they kept saying was like, you don't know half the story. Like you don't know the real story. And I was like, well then tell me. And they're like, we can't, you would fall out of your chair. And I was like, well, okay, but, but you could tell me like I'm, I've done therapy. Like I'm fully, you know, as healed as I'm going to be like, lay it on me. <laughs> so they wouldn't. So they kept saying like, you're telling your story it's only like this half story you don't know all the facts that's the problem with your book like you know and it was like an hour of that and then like after and then my parents went to bed <laughs> and my wife was like what the hell was that like what was going on i was like i don't know it's fine it was it was very strange so that was like the only like in-person like sort of drama that happened <laughs> yeah. oh my god that's so funny yeah well, yeah, it is a lot of emotions but i think yeah. that's what actually um resonates with a lot of the readers so tell us um, how you came up with the clever name for the book, Saigon, and chose this photo for the cover. Yeah, so two separate conversations. I had very, <laughs> so I had very little input on the cover. It was actually like really like just the design team at Flatiron. Um, <laughs> they, they, they sent me this like questionnaire. It was like three pages long. Like, what do you want the book cover to look like? So like I wrote it all out. Like, like I like you know had made this like Pinterest board. I was like, this is what I think the cover should look like. You know. And they're like, yeah. And then they gave me that cover. And I was like, oh, this looks not at all like the thing, but it's fine. Um, so I, I can't, but you know, I, it, I like it just didn't, it looks so different from what I had sort of given them input about that it took me a long time, but I, I love it now. Like, it's very funny. It's very much like, this is about like a, you know, <laughs> Vietnamese kid with like crazy teeth and like a bad, you know, 70s sweater. <laughs> um, you know, the title, I... Well, I mean, obviously, you know, like a, it's a pun on the name of the city, Saigon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wanted it to be evocative of something lost, right? And I think it's up to the reader, I think, to engage with this idea of like what's lost and like the wistfulness of, of the things that you lose in the process of assimilation and Americanization and coming here and leaving your country and all that stuff. Um, you know, I, in, and in a very real way, like I wanted to recreate the experience of someone having to spell something out um, mm -hmm. every time they say it, which is like my experience every time I'm ordering food or anything, like if I'm not using my Starbucks name, you know, like 
like I'm sure you have to spell out like your last name for people like all the time and um it was like such a it was such a coup when like uh I think I was like it was like weekend edition like NPR like Scott Simon like said Saigon and then he had to pause and then he had to spell it out and it's like that's my experience like every day all the time and also it's like this metaphor for you say the you know you say the words like Saigon and it looks like one thing and it sounds like another thing right um so it's hopefully operating on a couple of different levels yeah it's so clever thanks. I love it <laughs> thanks thanks not as good as yeah. me yet but <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good it's better um <laughs> speaking of though like just sort of having to spell out and pronounce your name like you know a lot of us grew up eventually changing their own names, myself included. And I remember reading your book where you tried to switch to Peter yep. after Peter Parker, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it made complete sense. Yep. Um, and so I don't know, you tell the audience, like, you know, in the end, why did you choose to keep your name? Oh, I just, I just didn't, I, like, I thought, I just thought that if I had like the name Peter, it would just like, okay, like I'm just going to fit in with everybody else, you know, like they won't make fun of my name. Uh, and then I didn't know that like Peter was slang for a penis. So like I, like the day that I changed, the day I changed my name to Peter for a day, like, and then the kids were all of a sudden like, suck my Peter. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I just didn't even know. And I was like, oh my God. So I just was like, okay, like if I'm just going to be made fun of no matter what, it's clearly not, you know, like, like my, <laughs> my experiment was like if I just change my name everything will be fine and I was like no it's you it's not your name so I just was like it's, <laughs> it's fine it, you know it was just too hard you know what was interesting is that I you know like I think as you I, I was like very like a lot of like Viet people know like you know you have like an American name and then you have your like Viet name and, like you know my aunt has you know like my aunt is you know but like her American name is Michelle and you know, her husband is Gian, but he goes by Paul. And it's like, everybody's got like a spy agent name, like an undercover name, <laughs> you know, or a superhero yeah, name, whatever. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. The whole naming thing is so interesting because I think when we were growing up, it was common. It was never questioned. It was easier yeah. to, you know, basically like make it easier for people around us. But now, I mean, all the news about, um, people like professors not respecting yeah. someone's given name or culture name it's absurd and it's ridiculous and it should be unacceptable in today's you know time yeah i mean i i saw this great performance um the, like pre-pandemic it was like one of the last things that i saw um and it was uh it was a a queer performer and um he was saying how you know we're constantly asking um you know, the LGBT community to bend towards straightness, like in the way that they live and in their life. And, and he did this thing where he made his audience sort of bend towards queerness. And it was really powerful. And I was like, oh, it's so true. And it's like, you know, and, and I think in some ways, like, that's a question that we can ask about, like, sort of dominant culture, you know, which is a standard for white culture. And like, like, we're constantly asking marginalized communities to bend towards whiteness. And so from time to time, like, why don't you bend towards us for just a little bit? Like, see how it feels. Like, it's not going to kill you. Like, to, you know, say, you know, wing or hope or whatever. <laughs> you know, I know we talked about how Asian Americans are treated and just sort of all the things that are happening to us that we have to be like, why is this happening still? 
you know, 30 plus years later. But the other thing that I wanted to just get your perspective on is that, you know, there are people in the Vietnamese community today that don't believe in opening up America for more refugees or immigrants. For whatever reason, our community today, there are people that believe that we were a different type of refugee. I'd love to hear your perspective on what all that means. Uh, again, caveat, I'm, I'm just a tattooer. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I understand it. I don't agree with it at all. Um, I think, you know, like I think, I think in Viet culture, like we're like, like I'm going to make some generalizations here, but I think like there's, there's a fine attunement to hierarchy and authority and power, right? Like I think like it, within the family structure, right? Like, you know, hierarchically, like who is where the pecking order. And I think that informs like their sense of like our larger culture. And so I think like there's a, at least in my limited experience with my family, like there's a strong alignment towards um, the power structure and preserving that power structure, aka whiteness and white supremacy, right? Like, so I think, I think that some, for, for some people, like I can't speak for anybody, but like my own experience in my family, I think, at least in my family, I think there's this idea that like, we, we're going to align with whoever was in, is in charge, because like, we respect the power structure and hierarchy, right? Because when you don't, you get civil war and we, and, you know, and like they've already come out of that. So I think, I, so I think like the conservatism comes from at least my family, um, you know, sort of emanates from, from the like sort of high, like being so highly sensitive to like power and authority. And um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? You think that's a, that's a lie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to think, to be honest. I mean, I have a lot of, um, strong emotions. Um, and a lot of it leans towards, um, I think it's hypocrisy. Mm. You know, I, I don't understand why we would think we are better or that mm -hmm. we are more deserving as a refugee group right. than others. So, you know, a lot of Racism. my feelings <laughs> lean toward that. Um, yeah. but when I say, I don't know what to think about it is because I think a lot of what shaped someone's opinion is their upbringing and their background and their experiences. And so, you know, I try to make sense of all that, like why perhaps the older generation of Vietnamese people might think that way. Yeah. And it's gener it seems like the break is generational, right? Yes. Like I think it's it's really like our parents' generation that that has that kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. Um yeah, I mean I, I suppose it could be like good old racism too, right? Like they just look down on other people and I don't I, I have no idea yeah I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt too but it, it is it's touchy I know we avoid certain topics in our family because I think you know no matter how old we are they're always our parents are always going to talk to us like we're children I think so it's it's very hard to win a debate yeah 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 for sure <laughs> yeah or even just have a conversation yes. right no I, I agree but I, I think I think for me, like I come at it from a place of curiosity and just trying to understand, um, you know, why they feel the way they feel. Like, I think, I, I think it would be presumptuous of me to enter into any conversation with my family with the mindset that like, I'm going to change somebody's mind. Like, I don't think that's particularly productive um, as opposed to just like listening, you know, and if they say something kind of like questionable or, you know, that I don't agree with, like, you know, like I simply just say like, well, oh, why do you feel that way? Right. And like, they'll say things like, oh, well, those people are, you know, 
rapists and drug dealers or whatever. And I'm like, do you know any? Like, you know, tell me, tell me why you think that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, at some point, like you get to the root of it and I don't know, maybe that helps them just in saying it aloud. Maybe they can hear it themselves. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, who knows? I know, complicated stuff. Well, yeah. I'm just a tattooer <laughs> <laughs> who's had a triple Rob Roy. So, you know, like really just a bunch of garbage coming out of my mouth right now. <laughs> so we're in season four and every season we have a theme. So this season, our theme is the search. Um, and it can be a search for something physical or metaphorical. So I'd like to ask you, what was young folk searching for? in his memoir and has adult folk found it? Yeah, oh, that's such a good question. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, young young Fook was definitely looking for um, his place in the world. And adult Fook has definitely found that. Yeah, for sure. If you haven't read the book yet, you can find it online at major book retailers and audiobook platforms. It's a perfect combination of trauma, classic literature, and comedy with the raw and honest look at a Vietnamese boy's search for identity, connection, and finding his place in the world. To connect with Folk directly, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Vietnamese Boat People and search for details under episode 26. And a special shout out, Megan Doe for the event production and Matt Young for editing support on this episode. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.